0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 426 featuring Lala Gavgavian, who is uh, the president and uh, chief operating officer of Digital Domain. Uh, I've known her obviously through my time over there. Uh, she's a wonderful person. Uh, had a very interesting career. She was not then starting in visual effects, but then when she ended up going to ILM many many years ago, uh, she ended up doing a lot of talent acquisition. And it was actually through uh, her reviewing uh, artist reels. Uh, that she started to learn more about how visual effects worked and what was good work, et cetera, et cetera. And it was actually a very interesting education that she had. She's very, very talented. She definitely knows <laughs> how to run a company. She's been doing that for a very long time. And uh, when she started at DD, you know, she sort of trans- started to uh, slowly transition to this role, and it's a really great fit for her. And it was really fascinating to talk to her uh, and to see all the amazing things that she has been able to accomplish. We talk a lot about uh, the industry and then talk about, obviously, DD, and I got very fascinated to know more about what's going on in their R&D department. And uh, how they see themselves moving in the next ten years. Obviously, the, the industry is changing a lot. We obviously obviously touch on how uh, uh, AI is going to affect the visual effects industry itself, and uh, we talk also about digital humans. You guys know I have a huge fascination for digital humans, and uh, to dig Doug, and now obviously they have a new digital human called Digi Zoe, and uh, touched on a little bit about what that is and how that works as well. So really cool to have her on. Very excited to to see what's going on over. At Didi, and uh, it was lovely chatting with her. So, uh, hopefully, you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. All right. We don't have any product announcements just uh, yet, uh, but we do have a couple of events coming up that maybe you would may be interested in. They're both uh, ArcVis events or architecture events more specifically. Uh, June 6th and 9th, we'll be at AIA in San Francisco. Again, that is June 6th through 9th. And June 11th through the 13th, we will be at Neocon in Chicago. So, if you are going to be attending either of the, those events, uh, both chaos and endscape will be there and we would love to see you. Uh, okay, now in terms of the podcast, if you guys have any ideas for the podcast, you would love to hear from you. Those are always a good thing. We get lots of great suggestions recently, so keep them coming because I, I can't always find the guests myself. So uh, any suggestions would be really, really great. Uh, you can always email us. That's the best way to do it. Labs at chaos.com is our email. Again, that is labs at chaos.com. But if you want to know more about the podcast or want to follow us, you can always go to our podcast page. That is chaos.com slash uh, cg Again, Again, that is chaos.com slash CG Garage. And uh, you can always watch us on YouTube, uh, which I always highly recommend. It's a lot of fun to see the actual podcast happen. Uh, and that is uh, YouTube uh, YouTube.com slash chaosgroup TV. Again, youtube.com slash chaosgroup TV. But for now, please enjoy episode number 426 with Lala Gavgavian. Welcome to another CG garage Where the chaos group talks You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range We know that ambient occlusion is passe Global illumination won't lead you astray And while image-based lighting is really swell you need to make sure
1: everything has fun now.
0: Well, Lala, thank you so much. It was awesome seeing you at the VES Awards and uh, uh, to be able to, to chat. And you said, yeah, sure, I'd love to be on. We'll figure this out after awards season, which, of course, we have to do. But uh, I'm glad we're able to do that now and to be able to to talk. Uh, obviously, you know you're now uh, uh, the global president and COO mm-hmm. of Digital Domain. That's um, absolutely amazing. I've known you for for many, many, many years, and it's just such a congratulations on taking on Thank such an you. important role in the company. You.
1: Thank you so uh, much. So,
0: I'd love to know a little bit about how how that journey started for you. Where how did you get into visual effects, and what was the path that led you there?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's so parallel with so many people's stories of. Um, how we got into VFX in this industry so long ago. This will be my 26th year in the industry. And having worked at only two studios in that span of time, starting at ILM and then moving over about 16 years ago to digital domain, it's been a journey. It really has. It was accidental how I got into the industry. Um, Yes, let's hear about that. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, the first part of my career, I was really in banking and the financial sector, You know, HR, I I dabbled in that in talent acquisition um, across the board in some of the banking operations. But, you know, I had made the leap to a quasi-public sector um, office, which was a fire department up in Marin County in the Bay Area. And that was at a time where I just needed a little more predictability in my schedule and whatnot. And one of the captains said, you, you aren't made for a quasi-military. This is way too slow of a pace for you. And I want to recommend you over to Industrial Light and Magic. I have my wife as a VP, and I think you would really thrive in that production environment. So he referred me over. I honestly, at the time, didn't even know they existed in Santa Fe because they were in such an elusive location. Um, when I showed up to a door, it said Kerner Optical Research Lab. And I was like, wait, am I in the wrong place? Um I was interviewed for a recruiting coordinator position and I got hired a little bit later after what that. year
0: was this approximately?
1: That was in nineteen
0: ninety-seven. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, nineteen ninety-seven. I think at that time we hadn't started um developing the prequels to Star Wars, but um everything was analog. I got, you know, the pleasure of looking at and processing paper paper resumes at that time over faxes wow. and emails yep. and whatnot. Um,
0: VHS tapes.
1: <laughs> and VHS tapes, actually, PAL tapes as well, and TSC, yep. you know, coming yep. from abroad. It was a very, very exciting time, though, because um, I was really learning the industry and the creative and the artistic and had opportunities to support the recruiters at the time going out to schools and looking at, you know, the CG programs in its infancy and how they were developing and... You know, everybody trying to understand how to really train a new sort of type of artist for our industry at that time.
0: But it was a very different time back then. There wasn't that many degrees in visual effects or anything of that nature, right? So you kind of had to find tangential careers and sort of say, what about coming over to making movies, right? Yes,
1: yes. You know, it's interesting for production. We always looked at do they have – waitressing and customer service experience on their resumes. We always sort of identify the up-and-coming talent through some other um, industries that weren't really relevant to ours, but some of those skills learned and the ability to service clients and whatnot were really important. And we found it in folk that were waitresses and waiters, and they were some of the most amazing production coordinators and PAs starting out in the industry.
0: So you're right. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. I mean, that was also, was that around, was was, uh, Steve Williams still at ILM at that time?
1: No, I think that was after my time or before my time. Yeah, before I started.
0: Right, right. Because I mean, and it was, ILM was just booming with creative technology just uh, at that time, right? It
1: was, it was. And really, I don't think there was enough talent locally to really build out the teams in the way we needed. So we had to go abroad and we really hired and relocated a lot of talent from overseas.
0: Interesting. What were some of the places that you were identifying some really interesting You know, the towns? UK
1: was a key one because Bournemouth okay. had a really well-established um, technical program with an uh-huh. artist uh, slant to it as well. So we were really uh, – many, many of the TDs and lighters um, all came from Bournemouth. There's a, a big alumni. of that's interesting. my from there, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so that's, that's really interesting. So during that time, obviously you said you didn't really know much about visual effects in the film industry, but you learned about skill sets that were necessary. So how did that sort of enter your education in terms of visual effects and what, what that was?
1: Yeah. You know, I learned from the best in the industry and really it was through real reviews, um, working Rob Coleman, who's one of my most favorite animation directors out there. Um, He really was an amazing teacher. We would sit Mm -hmm. and look at animation reels together once or twice a week to really sort of identify the um, animation teams for some of the upcoming projects. And he would really talk you through, you know, the 12 principles and really being able. So you can go away and do that first screening um, and then be able to sort of give and, you know, forward to to some of the different supervisors Um, It was really through the artist ranks and the supervisors that a lot of that education and going to reviews and dailies and just sitting there and absorbing um, the information was really one of the key ways that I ramped up in the industry.
0: Sure, sure. So uh, that's really an amazing education is to see so much work and be exposed to so much work and identifying the qualities that people have, either good or bad, right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Uh, what, so, so, so you were part of sort of acquisition, a talent acquisition for a long time, right?
1: Yes. That really predominantly is my background in the industry. Um, right. I was a recruiter, I elevated to a recruiter and then a talent manager, um, with the acquisition component. So that's been the crux of my experience in the industry. And then when I started at DD, that started expanding more into operations and doing a little bit more looking at spreadsheets, you know? Yeah. Kind of right. overarching,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's see, when, when did you start at Digital Domain?
1: That was in uh, 2007.
0: 2007, okay, yeah. all right. And yeah. so that was right sort of at the start of one of the new transformations of Digital Domain, right?
1: Yes, yes. I guess I came in to version DD 2.0 at the time. Right. And, you know, at the time, um, there were some ex-ILMers uh, and Lucasfilm executives that came over um, Kim Library, Cliff Plumer, and Mark Miller. And um, they, they were here about a year. And one of their business initiatives was to establish a real-time gaming division to do a game and a feature at the same time with the same assets, workflow, pipeline, um, with Kim sure. at the helm of that. And they invited me and asked me to come over to help build out those teams for that division at the time. And it's really fascinating because I think Kim was a little ahead of the curve um, at that time in terms of the vision for real-time workflows and whatnot, but I had left, um, Lucasfilm Animation actually, because I had gone up there to help build out those teams, um, to come here and help them establish that new division.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I said, th- that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting thing. And that was to been, that was right after Speed Racer, right? That, that It was, happen, right? yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, I find it really really, you know, you've seen obviously a lot of transformations in digital domain and 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 the industry in general, uh and especially in the last you know, 15-16 years. Uh what are your thoughts on some of those transformations and how and and how the the industry has changed?
1: Yeah, oh my gosh, the industry's changed so much. You know, we used to all be under one roof in a studio at any yeah. given studio and your entire population was right there and just over the years it's evolved to globalize, whereas the studios, in order to scale and being able to capture all the talent globally, they've established multiple locations um, that's really been in in what I've seen the biggest transformation um, whereas our vFX studios historically have always been hunkered down in one location, absorbing that culture, talent, and whatnot so That's been um, huge. And for us at DD, of course, we opened, we were kind of the first mainstream studio to be in to Vancouver um, at that time for being our first new location. So I got to be a part of that transformation as well and helping build out Vancouver, which was exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah. What was your thoughts on that during the, the, you know, sort of building out the different studios? Did you, was it, did you try very hard to try to create a single culture? Did you feel that each location needed to develop their own culture and their own feelings.
1: Yeah, you know what? We tried to make sure the DD DNA was infused in any location we were at. But of course, we wanted to respect the local cultures and whatnot as well. And really, like for Vancouver in the beginning, the talent base was minimal there in terms of, you know, high-end VFX talent because they all live somewhere else. So over time, that pool of talent really started establishing themselves and anchoring themselves in Vancouver. So that in itself was a cultural change for the location. Um, For us at DD, we definitely, you know, we actually sent over some longtime folk here to infuse, um, you know, the methodologies and workflow and philosophies to make sure we wouldn't lose that. And we're not looking to create a whole new company. It's still DD wherever you are.
0: Yeah. And like you said, you know, you've established, uh, we, we had established that, you know, different, different uh, locations for for many times when I was at DD with you. Um, and it was interesting that we all uh, saw that as like the, the infrastructure behind it all seemed uniform in some ways, which was a pretty big challenge, it, right? Yes. Um, but that challenge I think benefited the company in the end because when it came to, you know, when the pandemic happened, everything was already established that way, right?
1: Oh, yes. Actually, the irony is with the pandemic, it's really um, benefited us in terms of removing the boundaries as well as the borders, you know, right now our teams and the way we do our work distribution with our locations, we distribute each project to all the locations versus each location just being four-walled on a project. So, Having our, the cross utilization of the teams and with the pandemic, the work from home, Zoom, all the new ways of communicating really alleviated the, the, well, one, the need for physical travel to be with your teams in person. But two, it's sort of like nobody, you're not in Vancouver, you're not in LA, you're just on the monitor working together as a unified team. It really, um, that was one of the positives actually. For us being able to establish that work-from-home paradigm.
0: Absolutely. But how did that affect, uh, you know, if anyone can work from anywhere, uh, the old methodologies were based on tax subsidies in order to try to get those. So how did we, how does, you know, someone working out of Indiana, (laughs) how does that work in terms of tax subsidies?
1: Well, I mean, those are still important. and Sure. You know, we're lucky to have a really large footprint in our tax rebateable. And, you know, for these projects, it's not 100% tax rebateable. It's a portion of it. So we're able sure. to manage that, at least through the way we bid and distribute the work. Um, and for us, it's about the talent at the end of the day. And with this work from home, it has allowed us to have access to talent. Historically, we haven't been able to due to visa constraints or relocation challenges and whatnot. And we embrace that actually. So we've been able to have little pods of teams all over.
0: Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think that's really cool. And I definitely know that, you know, uh, I've spoken to a lot, I have a lot of friends still at Digital Domain, as you are well aware. And so it's been, they seem very much to enjoy the fact that they can work from home (laughs) in a lot of ways, or they can work at different locations if they wanted to. Uh, What have been the biggest challenges that you feel from that process?
1: Um, From the work from home? It's, uh, I think with the newer employees coming on and perhaps the more junior talent coming on, it's been a little, probably a little more difficult for them to integrate. Um, right. The more seasoned talent, the folk that have a lot of experience, and honestly, we're not a huge industry, so a lot of people have relationships already and shorthands. Um, they just, it's plug and play. They're able to come in and, and start working on a team. Whereas the brand new talent out of schools and whatnot, We do need to put some extra effort into integration into the teams and ramping up and whatnot. So, you know, in those instances, we do have teams come and work on site for that orientation and whatnot to make sure, you know, everyone's sort of getting all the love they need in terms of being able to execute on their day to day.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, with the amount of experience that you've had, you have seen a lot of different things. You've seen the ebbs and flows of the industry over the years and how it's, you know, uh, you have this, you know, this balance of work and how much work you have and, you know, work goes down, work goes up. And currently, you know, obviously there's challenges that are happening, uh, uh, across the industry. How does, how does, it, how do you sort of hunker down for some of those more rocky periods in the, in the visual effects industry? Yeah,
1: it- the cyclical is what you're referring to. Well, you know, we've been very fortunate. So post pandemic, you know, there's been sort of a VFX boom of content, all these studios really um, pushing out as much as they they can, which I think everybody has benefited from small studios, large studios. And now there's a little bit of a market correction happening um, in regards to that. For us at DD, because we're not a mammoth studio in terms of um, our size, and really how we get our work done as well. We're able to sort of move through those times in a more, you know, our, our ebbs and flows aren't these big swings. We're able to be a little more um, moderate in terms of, you know, our big our ramp ups and ramp downs. So while it, of course, you know, nobody's immune to to the market and the industry, it's we're not impacted in that big significant way as some studios are and have been recently. So we just look at sort of, we're still, we're always projecting out a couple cycles ahead and sorting out, you know, those bids and what that work uh, distribution will be and making adjustments along the way in that regard.
0: Yeah. I got to say, you know, I, I was, I was at DD during one of the most challenging times during the, during the bankruptcy. And I was so Impressed with how they handled that, considering what was going through, and a very open, you know, very open about what was happening at that time. Uh, we never missed a paycheck. And, uh, it was kind of this incredible thing that I was like, I say what you did about the controversy of the, of, of some of that stuff, never missed a paycheck and the company is still thriving. So I think that's really sort of a wonderful thing that's happened. And then, you know, I was like, if there's one place, if things are stormy, I'd be comfortable at (laughs) the children.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I Um, it's absolutely true. I think we are a little more conservative in our approach and our growth plans and whatnot for this exact reason.
0: Yeah, Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about the state of visual effect because I think, you know, besides obviously the ebbs and flows of things, it's, things have changed in terms of the types of content that, that we make, right? I mean, when I was there, we just looked at the big summer blockbusters that were going to happen and we'd ramp up for all those summer blockbusters. But the type of work that's happening now is just it's not just that summer blockbuster cycle anymore, right? It's episodic. It's all times of years. It's different scales. How how has that sort of changed the, the way that you guys pursue the work that you're looking for?
1: Yeah. You know, what's really cool about DD is we have different business verticals here. So of course we have our features group and episodics really goes through our features pipeline, but we also have our commercial advertising and new media teams as well as a really robust pre-visualization and visualization department. And of course, we have our mocap stages. This actually allows us to really pursue diverse revenue and clients and work that kind of fits into all these different biz verticals, technologies, talent base. Um, and from time to time, we can actually converge multiple uh, projects and teams together. So for instance, if we're doing episodic, we have opportunity to do the promo for that. That goes through our commercials, and we're sort of sharing assets and whatnot. So it's really allowed us to be a little more diverse and not so pigeonholed in one medium or platform in in our, uh, you know, execution of revenue here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm very curious, actually, about commercials. I mean, I I was always used to pay. I did a lot of commercials myself. This is during my time when I was not at DD, and DD was always like. Top of the commercial uh, zone. But commercials used to be very, very expensive, and there'd be big commercials that are always on TV. And today, the state of commercials has changed quite a bit, obviously, with uh, the way that social media is happening and everything else. What are you guys, how are you guys sort of diversifying yourself in terms of commercial work for stuff beyond television?
1: Yeah, so commercials has drastically changed. It's it's, and I really don't come from that world. But having started at DD, we had a very robust commercials division, a traditional group in terms of car commercials and whatnot. And all of that has really evolved over the years. Um, we our commercials team is is a Swiss Army knife, and it still is. And they work very closely with the other sectors of the business in pursuing clients jointly. Um, You know, the metaverse and all these sort of new um, platforms and mediums, they're really at the forefront of that and pursuing opportunities in that space as well, because so much of the talent, skill, abilities and innovations that don't fit into a mold of how you get a features done can be executed through those teams and talents and technologies, actually. So we have we've done a lot of cinematic work, which historically, you know, wasn't really part of commercials but um we have a lot of cinematic work moving through there as well as game-centric um opportunities like last year we finished a a really large game that's doing well out there in terms of um the facial capture which is the quarry which happened through our new media team plus commercials combined
0: okay yeah Mm -hmm. well that's that's interesting and i'd actually you know I want to talk a little bit about, I may go back and forth a little bit, but I do want to talk about uh, Digital Domain's R&D department because uh, Digital Domain had, you know, it was one of the early, early, early uh, studios, visual effects studios that were focused on computers. And there was always R&D that was involved at at uh, DD back in those days by necessity because there was no other Ways of buying tools—you <laughs> had to make your own, right? Uh, but that tradition has continued for a long time, uh, and it still continues to this day. Uh, I want to start with something that I know you know about uh, that you guys have done, and then sort of ask you about more ones. But I want to start with digital uh, digital humans
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the kind of area that you guys have been focusing. You guys have had a specific area of research in digital humans for many, many, many years now. Uh, what? Where? Where did that? Where did that start from, and, and where is it going now?
1: Yeah, well, it started a long time ago, even before I was here. But um, with, it's, with
0: buttons, right? <laughs>
1: yes, yes. Even before that, right? Some of the commercial work that we had done. But, sure. um, you know, it really took root when actually Darren Hendler and Doug Robel really made this pitch to establish a standalone digital human group R&D team, really to right. sort of investigate, prototype. Um, and develop new techniques and innovations that are independent of a project, because oftentimes we would do some of this R&D tethered to a project we needed to execute on. And so um, Darren was a very convincing fellow and went to our uh, CEO, Daniel Say, and really proposed this. And that was back, I believe, in 2018 that we established a full-on R&D um, team, a carve-out from the regular software engineering team only focused on facial, digital human technologies. That's really grown since then. And now we have product teams established in the hierarchy. Um, We've developed so much and we've used so much in our work. We have a lot of machine learning specific technologies. Charlatan is one of our proprietary tools that we've applied to um, on multiple projects. She-Hulk being one, Masquerade, 2.0 is actually another really key proprietary tool that is um, some of of the best tech on the market right now that we use on all of our facial shows. Um, So we've had a lot of inroads in that regard.
0: Can you give me a bit of uh, uh, an outline of what some of those tools are and what do they do? Yeah,
1: so, um, oh, gosh. I may not be the best person to get deep dive into the technology. Well, you can give me a general
0: (laughs) overview.
1: We uh, we do. We have Charlatan, which is our machine learning um, technology that we use in terms of, you know, for – there's a spot that just came out soon – that will be coming out soon that showcases it really well that we'll share with you in the future. But um, we have Charlatan. We have Masquerade. Um Some of our sort of digital human smeat is our muscle system that we use. Samson of course is our hair and groom system that's proprietary to us as well. Um, I think those are sort of the key ones that we've been using. You know we've been developing sure. the markerless trackers um for right. masquerade, which is really exciting but if I knew you were going to ask me this question, I would have brought my cheat sheet. That's <laughs> okay.
0: That. That's okay. That's okay. In fact, you know what we should do is and we should have someone from the Digital Human Group yeah, on actually, and I can, that you know, would be I can get more geeky yeah. with them. But yes. I just wanted to get an idea. I know that there's definitely uh, some pretty incredible tools out there. Uh, and uh, like you mentioned, you said you guys have been using machine learning technology to train these systems and for years, right? They, yes. You've been doing this since 2018, 2019, you've been looking
1: at machine learning, right? Yes. Yes. And it's only, at, you know, we're developing it faster and faster at this time. so it's definitely, I know it's the AI and whatnot is the new craze right now, but we have been working in that for a while. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was interesting. Cause I had a conversation with Deke uh, not long ago about this and I asking him about what, you know, digital domain is thinking about AI and, uh what's interesting about the way that he put it is a lot of places i have signed there is like, oh, we're scared how it's going to disrupt this and that. And yeah. he's like, well, we've been using it for a long time, so we're not really scared of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And in fact, it's, it's really just a yet another tool to enhance, right? And allowing, especially in some of the traditional workflows, if there's opportunities to sort of automate things that allow the artist to spend more time on that final image up on the screen... So they're not doing all the, you know, tchotchke kind of setup and whatnot to eliminate that for them so they can just focus full time on more versions of a shot. Um, I think that would be the end goal on that. So um, I, I don't it's never it's never going to replace talent in the way we know it. You know, I can't see that happening.
0: Sure. Do you, do, do you have, I, I, I believe you, uh, mm-hmm. I'm totally with you. Uh, do you, do you feel that there's a way to sort of illustrate that, but better to say, Hey, look at the things I've done and the talent that's behind it is still done by humans.
1: <laughs> if, is there a way to, um, illustrate that, you know? Yeah. I th- I think you could probably do comparisons, right. In terms right. of a final shot in term in, in our language, have sure. it go through an AI machine versus with no human touch, really, and then have one. And I think you would see a big difference in that final result. Um,
0: yeah, I, I agree, and I think this is interesting, especially with your background uh, in talent acquisition. You know that the talent is more important than the tools, right?
1: It it is. The tools are just uh, you know another brush, another pen, another pencil, and um, it really comes down to that individual. You could the aesthetics are people drive that, you know, it's hard for that just to be spit out of a machine on its own.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you see, do you see a lot of, uh, you know, obviously you guys, have, like I said, we've done a lot of work on digital humans and therefore you're getting interesting work with digital humans, such mm-hmm. as She-Hawk, et cetera. Do you see, uh, do you see a certain way that, that, that you're the, what's happening in the industry is sort of dictating or driving some of your technology or research? Like we should do more research in this area because we see trends in that area.
1: Oh yeah, most definitely. And actually that's always been our um, inspirations for the digital human technologies. It's really seeing the projects, the projects inspire the technology and then all the different research and um, new opportunities out there do so as well. So we definitely sort of We have a whole team. I mean, Jason within uh, the group, he's always out there. He's reading papers and, you know, turning over every rock on all the new things happening. He's usually three, four, five months ahead of all the trades and articles of all the new things happening because he's researching all day long. Um, But we definitely are inspired by the different trends that are happening. Um, But at the same time, we're also improving the existing ones, you know, and the ones that historically just... Again, to being able to make the best digital human, the fidelity of it, you know, moving past the uncanny valley, all those things, the historical challenges that come with trying to create a virtual human.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What I also find interesting is that... um, there is a you know there's a trend and especially in in with the ai going on people are sort of freaking out in some ways not necessarily that the ai is doing what it's doing but also that if we don't do something in this area there's going to be some fomo right so like we yeah. we're, we're not going to be part of it do you find that that's sort of a a good way to go or is it better to just chart your own course and and just use the tools as they're necessary <laughs>
1: Well, I guess it's all relevant to your business model, right? At the sure. end of the day, in terms of how you would use those applications, I don't think we can ignore it. I don't think we can sort of just assume it's a little bit of a trend coming and going, because I, I do think it's here to stay. Um, but again, I, I do see it being a opportunity to enhance all business models um, as a tool, as an additional tool um, to really elevate everything you're doing and accelerate things you're trying to develop that perhaps would take much longer periods of time. Um, And also, you know, reduce the the need for all of the really those little tasks that can be freed up so you can focus on the meat of a problem um, and get that result sooner. Yeah,
0: I, I, I agree. I think. I mean, I think that there's going to be AI tools that can develop all kinds of things, including bidding. <laughs> you yeah. can probably yeah. outbound bidding.
1: If only. It's a t- challenging <laughs> task. Yeah, it really is. I have all admiration yeah. for all bidding producers. It's, it's a very oh difficult... Oh, my God.
0: Uh, um, I, when I was a VFX supervisor, it was it was partially one of my favorite things to do because that's when you got to make some creative decisions or proposals, shall we say. Yeah. But at the same time, it's so much work.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really is. But, you know, I've learned over the years, like, no shot is the same at the end of the yep. day. Even though it may look the same, it really isn't. Um, yeah. So bidding yeah. is is a unique skill. And, again, I... They have full admiration for everyone who knows how to do it between supervisors and producers,
0: yeah. Right, right. Now, as someone who's had to obviously deal with uh, with the studios for for many years, like you know, such as Fox and Sony and Paramount and and uh, uh, Disney and Marvel, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, with the advent of streaming networks, what have been some of the biggest changes in terms of you? Uh, dealing with them and bidding with them and relationships you develop with some of these streaming uh, platforms?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it it hasn't really, the approach, the dialogue, all of it isn't really different to the features side, at least with the clients that we work with and the streaming projects that we work on. Um, it's in our approach, it's sort of looking at the work and, uh, you know, timeframes aren't that different really than the features. So, it it really, we truncate it, you know, we don't have a whole separate episodic division and client base. And on the client side, the teams, there's still that one executive, whether it's features or episodic, really in charge of the distribution of that work. So the conversations are usually very similar to how we pursue features projects. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd say that sounds about right. What about, uh, but you also mentioned, obviously, you you talked about the metaverse and I sort of want to piggyback on that specifically, not specifically metaverse, but you're always trying to look at the next thing. And you mentioned this with the commercial group. They're always looking at where the next trend is going to be and how that's going to address things. Mm -hmm. What are some of the trends that you guys are looking at right now that you feel are going to be? Uh, big and you guys need to get involved like the metaverse as an example
1: yeah so we haven't really done a whole lot with the metaverse we've had a lot of conversations many of you know the mainstream ones Decentraland Sandbox whatnot have approached us to you know understand our technologies and the side of the business and how that can translate into their worlds and whatnot so we've had a lot of dialogue it's hard to see because the metaverse just it's until there's a time where the fidelity and level of what comes out of our industry can be transported and supported within those worlds it it's a little bit of a ways off right now um for us really some of the really cool technologies we've been developing that could be cross utilized would be in kind of markets that maybe aren't as um sexy the medical field you know sure. so some of the different um markets out there that have parallels and they need, you know, new training opportunities for their doctors and whatnot, where our technologies can really help support those, um, endeavors is sort of some of the things that we're looking at right now. So
0: that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a big market and, um, there, you know, of course the virtual concierge and, you know, all, all different sort of Industries that are utilizing, there's a lot of virtual influencer opportunities out there and whatnot, but we really are looking at um things, you know, in sectors that we traditionally wouldn't work with historically. Sure. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Uh but also I uh, what's curious about, you know, obviously you have you talked about uh your previs and your stages as well. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier about going uh real time and when 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 Kim Librari was trying to develop the game and a movie at the same time. Yeah. Do you feel that there is now now is the magical moment where you can sort of cross between real time and, 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 and feature level offline rendering?
1: Yeah, I actually think I think the opportunity just needs to be there. I think part of the challenge historically was the technology maybe wasn't completely there yet, but I also think the talent base wasn't there either to know how to execute in real time. There's a much bigger pool of talent thanks to Epic, you know, in terms of, you know, a lot more Unreal engine artists out there that are executing in it in all different mediums, including our industry. So I do think, I think, I think it's happened already, right? In some sort of shorts and whatnot. Um, I was watching uh, a short the other day that was done all in Unreal, and it was mind-blowing. It was really beautiful, um, engaging, and... It's like wow, you could do a whole feature like this. It was really interesting.
0: Yeah, I I, I think to some extent that's true. I think there, I mean I have my own uh, my own feelings as well in terms of the uh, ray tracing pipeline, but I'm not going to get into that geeky <laughs> stuff <laughs> just yet. But I do think it's true uh, that that there's a there's a way to to sort of uh, leverage real time rendering and high quality rendering at the same time. Um, there, uh, do you do you feel that your you are starting to have because of the way that you interact with the virtual production group um the assets that you're getting from art departments do you feel them suddenly you're starting to get more assets that are have an origin in the art department as opposed to just a sketch saying here make this
1: (laughs) yes absolutely especially sometimes through the post-biz process as well um right we have we've actually done a few projects now where we've um, repurpose some of the assets that were developed through the virtual production process into our um you know vfX pipeline and using them of course you you know they need to be enhanced more and and whatnot and, and sometimes they change along the way before that show delivers but yes there there is synergies there that can be utilized and and optimized actually to um kind of bring those teams closer together
0: absolutely um I have a question. Though. Obviously, you know, we mentioned obviously the metaverse, but in general, uh, do you feel, uh, what do you think about uh, Web3 and how mm-hmm. Web3 may uh, may affect uh, the kind of work or, or demands that, uh, that you guys are working on?
1: You know, for us, it's um, it's hard to tell. Again, we've had a lot of conversations with, you know, startups, but also established companies really exploring that platform and opportunities. And it's, you know, we kind of put all our cards on the table, do our demos, show them our technologies, and then it's a kind of a little bit of a dialogue on how things can be cross-utilized over into that world. It's it's still a TBD. It's still hard to sort of see. because um, the truth is our technologies are so robust and so big, it's hard to dumb them down, you know, in which is a horrible word, but you know, to be to be able to be transportable into platforms that you may not need that such robust it's overkill almost. Um, Absolutely, for, for that. Type I of content. I get it. I get it.
0: Yeah. Um, but I do okay, let's talk about one of your your, your big ones that is a big robust and very important uh, area of research you did so about Digidug, right? So yeah. uh, Digidug was, you know I seemed almost way too early (laughs) to have him. Because now with the advent of, you know, the big push in AI, that DJ Doug can can start to really have a much bigger life uh beyond that. Is that something that you guys have envisioned uh him having a bigger role in the company?
1: Yeah, so you know what's interesting is um because of course um Doug departed us for meta um, a couple years ago, but upon his departure, we actually created Zoe. So, Digi Zoe is our new autonomous virtual human. Oh, um, wonderful! And she is far more advanced than what Digi Dog Doug was in terms of um, her capabilities. And so, we are still continuing developing our autonomous virtual human, um, and we have some upcoming potential opportunities in terms of showcasing her in different ways, but. Yes, we, we haven't abandoned that. We are actually um, improving on it, which those learnings get cross-utilized into our actually feature side for the look dev, for the, um, the, the different things that go into her. We actually then are able to carve that out and implement those in some different workflows and technologies utilized for the day-to-day or service side of the business as well.
0: And are you seeing a lot of demand for digital humans uh, still, or more demand for digital humans in the content you're making? We
1: are, yes, we are. We have a few upcoming projects that that are using that. So it doesn't. And for DigiDoubles, I mean, the the virtual humans are seem to always be a necessary part of a pipeline and sure. projects, um, especially for some of our big action oriented projects that we work on. So yeah, I don't think that's going away anytime soon.
0: And what's been Didi's position? I remember, you know, before the pandemic, I was uh, I had had been invited to many a panel uh to discuss the concerns about digital humans. Mm. Uh and I was uh, it was concerns over deep fakes in elections. And then it turns out that we didn't really need deep fakes to yeah. <laughs> didn't do anything in the election. <laughs> uh and then there was also concerns about um uh, digital humans. Uh, I had I was on a panel for SAG-AFTRA, concerned about digital humans affecting the livelihood and of of, of actors. Uh, mm-hmm. What is your take on that, and how is the position on how actors and and their digit doubles could commingle? <laughs> shall we yeah, say? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. It's it's like an ethical question as well, right? Um, yeah. You know, I think for actors and talent, I don't know that DigiDevils will ever really replace them. No different than I don't think AI will ever replace an artist's ability to, um, you know, bring something to life, in, in aesthetically and visually. Um, but I I do think that any person outside of actors, actresses, me, you, you know, it it is something to be aware of in in terms of how your image can be used or any proprietary function of yourself out there. So it seems there's like a whole new law book that needs to be written in regards to um, protecting those rights and how you obtain them as well, you know, legally and everything's above board and there's sign off, etc. So I know for us, anytime we engage in a client, you know, there's a lot of due diligence in terms of making sure they have the rights to particular things. I mean, there's a lot of sign-offs in that regards um, before we even engage. And we've actually even said no to certain projects that don't really necessarily fit into our philosophy as a company um, in terms of how that digital virtual human would be utilized and showcased out into the world.
0: Uh, I remember when Didi was at the forefront of that controversy or, or, or discussion Uh, with Tupac and I was still at at the at the time and there was very specific ways that we felt comfortable working on that project it was with permission from the family respect from uh, uh from Dre and from Snoop so it was really kind of a big deal right yeah
1: it's really important because you know your thumbprint ends up being on that final content and um it has to align with your ethics as well you know as a company yeah,
0: I mean, does that? I mean, I know that a lot of companies that are that are doing AI have a sort of uh, involved specific people that are working on the ethics of what they're doing. Is that something that you guys are considering more generally, or do you have like specific ethic departments to work on those
1: some of those things? Yeah, we don't actually have a formal ethics department, but we certainly have internal. When a project is approached or an idea has come forth, we do for sure. It does escalate to the executive team with our legal department and we have round table discussions on, on it in terms of, does this make sense for us all in? Um, So there isn't a a formal ethics group, but it is something that is, everyone is aware every single, you know, salesperson here, every single producer, supervisor, before we just say yes to anything, we do evaluate it closely first.
0: Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I'm that's kind of what I, I experienced as well. But it is really amazing. I mean that the the I remember buttons and I know some of the old digital humans that were done there, but buttons was for the first time I was like, oh my God, DD cracked the code, and that was in 2007. Yeah. Uh so it was pretty impressive back then for sure. Um Okay, uh, I'd love to know a little bit more, like, like, obviously, where where do you see digital domain in, in like 10 years and 15 years from now? Like, where do you see the growth that's happening that you guys are trying to develop at this point?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think um, we're not looking to be the Costco visual effects. I, I can't see us being that company in 10 years. Um, but we do want to do work on high quality work here for the VFX side that helps push our talent as well as our technologies forward. So we will continue to endeavor that and have close partnerships with our clients in that regard, um, bringing amazing visuals to the screen, you know and being that core business will always be there and invigorated and improving, you know, with every project that we do. I think outside of that, we are looking at our digital human technologies and how those can sort of immerse in different markets like we discussed, and really pushing our R and d efforts forward a little more. Um, in a robust way, because as you know, DD, we haven't, you know, if you compare us to any of our competitors, we're probably one of the smallest sort of uh, companies that produce equal type of work at the end of the day. Right. So we are looking to build out some of those teams and whatnot for the future for these new markets and immersing technologies such as, you know, the metaverse and. Um, virtual production, real-time workflows, et cetera, to be able to really embrace that and be a key player in that space.
0: Well, awesome. That's really great. Well, Tivis, I know you can't, this is always the problem. You can't tell us about stuff you're working on currently, but can you give us some hints of some of the things we can look forward to in the near future?
1: Oh, we're working on a super cool project right now. Um, I can tell you who the supervisor is on it. um, Matthew Butler. Um, oh, he's Matthew actually on, on the client side, um, you know, but he's still part of DD, and we're working on his project, which is going to be a super, super interesting, different type of project than what we've seen historically um, with the cycle of VFX-centric features uh, coming out. Yeah, so we're really excited about that one, but we have a, a big bench of work we're working on right now, and it will be released this year and next year.
0: Awesome. Well, then I will have to get in touch with Matthew and talk, ask him all about this he's, project. He just when got back out.
1: from onset, so he's available. Oh, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> that
0: sounds great. That sounds great. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on. It's so wonderful to see you. And again, it was great to see you at the VS Awards. And I really hope that, you know, uh, I can we re- really look forward to some of the amazing work you guys are doing. Uh, digital domain is a very important part. Um, you know of, of of the visual effects industry and obviously a big part of my life right so yeah. this is very important to me well, we miss uh, you a lot of people a lot of <laughs> dd people have come through this podcast uh and so it's really kind of cool to, <laughs> to to have you on as well to to sort of <laughs> let us know what's going on right wow.
1: now thank you so much for this opportunity it was really a pleasure to catch up with you and we do miss you here at dd so
0: there is a long seat <laughs> oh that's that's <laughs> sweet thank you so much